This is Gil Manser welcoming you to February's word-by-word conversation with writers on North Bay Public Media KRCB-FM. Today's guest is the award-winning novelist and writing teacher Joshua Moore, whose literary memoir, Sirens, was released in January. Joshua was raised by his mother in Phoenix and moved to the SF Bay Area to live with his dad when he was 17. He also went to school here and received two BAs from San Francisco State, one in history and the other in creative writing. He earned his MFA in creative writing at San Francisco University and currently lives in San Francisco Mission. His five novels are populated with word pictures of individuals he encountered in his neighborhood and workplace. A professional bartender, many of his characters are addicted to booze and drugs and alternative realities. And his work has earned accolades including one of O Magazine's top ten reads, an editor's choice in the New York Times, and the Northern California Book Award. Joshua's turned inward for his latest book, Sirens, a literary memoir that grapples with the constant challenges involved with what Meredith May calls letting chaos flow into sordid stories. <laughs> Joshua, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thanks, Gil. I look forward to talking shop. Okay. The person you write about in Sirens reminds me of other addiction-fueled California writers like Ken Case here, Charles Bukowski, and thought, made me think of a quote from John Steinbeck. Hmm. I have always lived violently, drunk hugely, eaten too much or not at all, slept around the clock or missed two nights of sleeping, worked too hard and too long in glory, or slobbed for a time in utter laziness. I've lifted, pulled, chopped, climbed, made love with joy, and taken my hangovers as a consequence, not as a punishment. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. <laughs> so um, you kind of – the story is very interesting, the way you put the book together, because it's not a begin at the beginning, go to the end kind of thing at all. It's got flashbacks, some of them, you know, a couple of years, some of them 17 years, some of them, you know, yesterday kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and it all somehow there comes together in a cohesive whole, but you've got to read the whole thing. And the thing is that you've got little short bits interspersed with something, you know, when some major revolution, and then you realize later as you're reading, that little short bit was important. Sure. So how did you put this book together? Did you have lots of little short bits, you know, in file card system or some way? My first draft of this memoir was very linear, mm-hmm. you know, start at the beginning, and I told the facts straight. Uh, And I came to the end of that draft and thought to myself, well, I wrote this and I think it's boring. Right. Um, I'd read that book 85 times and I didn't want to be the person to write the 86th. (laughs) So I put it aside for a while and I wasn't sure if I was even going to publish this. I Mm -hmm. had fun writing these little essays and I thought they sort of held together, but they needed something. Uh, the the analogy that I was thinking about was a planet needs to be um, providing the gravity. And once I had that planet there, then I could have these various stories satelliting around it like, like moons. I just didn't know what that was going to be. I had no idea what that planet was going to be. And you flash forward to... January 1st of 2014, uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning, I was giving my daughter a bottle. And I lost the feeling from my shoulder to my toes, and I was having a stroke. 
was 38 years old. And when I got to the hospital and they did an MRI, it wasn't my first stroke. It was my, it was my third. Um, and for them, you know, doctors love cases that are very juicy. Like, this doesn't make any sense. I was at UCSF, too, so it's a teaching hospital. Right. So there was just like a gaggle of frothing doctors like, oh, let's crack the code. Let's see what's going on in here. And they figured out that I have a congenital heart defect. With a hole as wide as, what did you say, eight dimes or as eight, thick as eight, eight dimes? Eight millimeters. Yeah. If you think about the, you know, the size of a heart, that's, that's a huge, huge hole. And yeah. Basically, what it was creating was this super highway for blood clots to go up to my brain. So the, 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 the surgeon, the neurovascular surgeon, had to actually go into my heart and build a wall, which was a thing I didn't even know you could do. they could do. Right. <laughs> so that became – He could run for the, president on that. The frame then or Did the you planet. Get my, you didn't get my joke. I didn't get it. Run no, for, I said if he built a wall, he could run for oh. president on that. Never mind. Oh, that's oh, the man. last I will make reference to current events. Oh. Okay. Let me, let me get that out of my system for a minute. Yeah, that's right. Have a sip of coffee. Entree. Okay, we're back. The, um, so that became the planet, that, that path from the minute I got diagnosed until the, until the heart surgery. Um, and that gave me the latitude to hop in the time machine for you know two weeks earlier, two years earlier, 20 years earlier. And it also made the stakes more approachable, right? It wasn't just about a drunk or a junkie anymore. Right. It was about somebody on the other side of it. It was somebody who's been sober for six years or something with a 18 month old kid. Mm -hmm. You know, so the stakes couldn't be any higher when you're meeting me in the book. And hopefully we can build that necessary camaraderie between reader and main character before I start confessing all the the dubious and the and the terrible things you're we're already my co-pilot by the time we start to go down some rabbit holes yeah <laughs> quite a few rabbit holes a lot of rabbit holes a lot of rabbit holes so you talk about i guess if you were to do this a linear way i don't know how to how to do this but let since i'm a psychological educator so i immediately went to your parents mm-hmm. and you reveal things a little bit at a time right you have a, a let me let me share what you what you wrote about let me get the page there, what you wrote about uh, your father, and um, at a wedding, okay that's forty eight forty nine, so um, which I think is is quite insightful and it certainly was an important day in your life. Starts here, goes to there. Sure. But we were talking about my wedding day with Blue, and here's what I remember. Can you give us a time, a date for for this? Um, August 5th, 2002. Okay. An hour or so before the ceremony, helping my father get dressed. We were alone, the two of us putting on our rented tuxedos, and his hands shook so badly from the chemo, the radiation, the steroids, all the terrible experimental treatments he put his body through so he could watch my sisters grow up. He wanted to live long enough He told me to know them as adults, like you, he said, like how I know you. He stood in the dressing room with his shirt unbuttoned, so frustrated with his shaking hands and too stubborn to ask for help. I said, let me, and started with the bottom button and worked my way to his thin throat. And he said, sorry. And I said, don't be. And he said, it's embarrassing. And I said, it's only us. And he said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And he said, 
proud of you. He meant it, of course. He was my father, and he loved me, and I was his son, and I loved him. I watched those stupid, shaking hands of his as he said that he felt proud. Proud of me? Why, and how, and what for, and I hate that during the ceremony I stood in front of him, pledging that I do my best to make that marriage work, for better or worse. Because I didn't. I couldn't. I lied to him to blue, to every witness. Yet there were a few seconds before the wedding, before my lies, a few minutes, a pure and shining and sincere moment between father and son. I'll always have that image of his frail frame barely filling out a rented tuxedo, not a hair left on his head, a complexion like a raw prawn. There we were, Father and son, me buttoning his shirt, him speaking those three words. When I first read that, the first the three words I assumed were "I love you," but then I'm wondering if "proud of you" isn't the three words. I went back and forth with my editor about that because I originally the draft that I had turned in said he spoke those three words, colon, right. proud of you. Right. Because I felt like in our culture, if you, if somebody says three words, we immediately think, I love you. I love you. you. Right. And my editor sort of liked the ambiguity there that certain readers would see one thing and certain readers would see another. But my, my authorial intent was that it was going to be proud proud of you. Mm-hmm. Um, because that at that point in my life just felt like, you know, a shiv in the kidney because yeah. I couldn't imagine that anybody could possibly be proud of me because I was just I was falling apart. Nobody really knew it yet, but I I certainly had. Well, those who were close access. to you or physically close knew it because they saw it on a daily basis. Sure, yeah, because you were in the depths of addiction at this point. Yeah, things were not getting better. You know, I and mean, we we know. Analytically, you know, that we hear like alcoholism is a degenerative disease and we've seen, you know, time and time uh, these representations of it. But to actually be, you know, in kind of the visceral throes of it from an emotional standpoint. Right. And be like, I d- I'm not even having fun anymore. I don't even like doing drugs. I just can't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's I think that's what the word craving actually means. We've kind of devalued that word in our in our society. But when you think about the word crave means you don't have a choice. And at that point, I was certainly not making the decisions anymore. So why did you marry Blue? And because it was something to make someone proud? There was a scene that didn't actually make the final draft of the book. I'm glad you asked me that, uh, where I was sitting in my father's minivan, um, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. And he said, before I go, I want to I wanna marry you. Um, and this is not to you know, denigrate you know, her or our time together at all, but I'm not sure without the authority um, of that request mm-hmm. – you know, somebody who's dying, who right. you love. Well, it's important that our listeners know when you say, I want to marry you, that he's a minister. He's a Lutheran minister. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, we got married in August, and he was dead eight weeks. He was dead eight weeks later. Right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, who knows what would have happened. But my hunch is that I don't think we would have gotten married if I hadn't felt some sort of 
pressure. I mean, pressure might makes it sound more um, caustic. Yeah, you know, I think it was coming from a place of love that he knew that he had like one milestone left, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was the most attainable. Um, and so we, so we did it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the you know proud of you. This would be another little notch on some checklist of things that you'd done. Yeah. So that he'd be proud, even prouder of you, especially Absolutely. the fact that he was performing the ceremony. Well, and you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to put the book together in a, in this kind of architecturally confused way uh, is that I wanted to the I wanted the book to read as though it was a love letter to Ava, which mm-hmm. is my daughter, mm-hmm. um, because. When they de- when they decided they were going to do the heart surgery, that was in the middle of January, and the surgery wasn't going to be until March 11th. And the neurovascular surgeon kept saying, your only job is to stay alive. Right. And as a writer, I was like, well, that's not my only job. My only job is I need to try to make sense of this, and the only way that I know how to make sense of anything is writing stuff down. So my maybe overcorrection as a parent was to say – when my father passed, I didn't really know who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, he was somebody who was very comfortable in um, facades. He was somebody who was very happy if other people were only seeing the best sides of him. Right. And when he died, and this happens, you hear this, this story a lot from friends and family, and that when he died, people started to come out of the woodwork and confess some things mm-hmm. or some chinks in that in that armor and it I would argue that it's the it's my biggest regret in life that I never got to ask and hear his side of those stories so that that um that regret led me to put this artifact this book together for Ava and say for better or worse I want you to know exactly who I am mm-hmm. the things I'm really proud of the things I'm ashamed of. I'm going to put the whole ball of wax down here so you can make your own decisions. About you. About, about Joshua. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that vitality. Well, I'll tell you about halfway through the book, I wasn't sure I liked you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Probably. Yeah. So I'm glad you became more human as a dad. Well, it's interesting when you're putting together a memoir, uh, which you know requires this this level of intimacy and honesty. There are certain vignettes where I'm putting things together, and you have to ask yourself, "Why am I doing this? Right. What's the point? Why don't I just like bury my dirty laundry in the backyard like everybody else does?" No, you don't. You put it in a, <laughs> in a duffel bag and carry it around and, and give it a name. No doubt about that. Um, and that, I think that was one of the things from a novel. You know, I've written five novels and having that, that literary toolbox already filled was very helpful. Right. I don't know if I would have been able to put this book together if it was my first book this way. I mm-hmm. think I probably would have written that crappy linear version we were talking about yeah. before and just called it a day. Um, so it was nice to have some other stories under my belt. So I felt like I could be a little bit more nimble with structure and approach it in a more idiosyncratic way. Right. In the introduction, I talked about how you were raised in Arizona with mm-hmm. your mom and then moved out here with your dad. But that so glibly covers so much backstory. Sure. And the reference you just made about to your father having secrets. 
you know, that he, you weren't aware of and right. that you learned later after his passing and wish you could ask about. And there's a section, this is out of, you know, sequential order, but I think it fits right here where you, um, is that okay if we read why the dad left? Sure. You with your dysfunctional mom at this point? Because it's later on in the book, you know, it's it's a reveal, I guess you would say, um, which we build up to, you build up to. But it fits right into what we've been talking about. How far do you no want to No one ever here? told the truth. It goes about a page and a half. Up until this one? Yeah. Okay. okay. Is that good? Oh, perfect. All right. No one ever told me the truth. I didn't know the real reason my dad left me in the desert with my mom until after he died. For years, I'd carried this desolate question around. How come she was so alcoholic that he had to get away from her? And why would he leave me behind? If he had to go, why didn't he take me with him? The truth was simple. The truth was self-preservation. The minister was getting run out of town for screwing a woman in his parish. And if there was a custody battle with my mom, his secret would come out. If he left quietly, no one had to know. So he saved himself, moved to Berkeley, and started over, giving my mom full custody, giving him a cover story. My father loved me. I have to believe that. But he loved himself a little bit more. I want to write something judgmental. I want to write how as a father myself now I'm appalled, say something about how I'd never treat my daughter that way, and I hope that's true. But you never really know, I guess. You don't know if you're capable of acting selflessly until everything ruptures around you. It wasn't until after his funeral that my biological mom told me the truth about his affair in Arizona, telling me it wasn't the first time either. I said, why are you telling me this now, after he's dead? I can't ask his side. I was always hoping he'd tell you himself, she said. What am I supposed to do with this? It's your life, she said. You're supposed to know about it. But the more I found out, the less I knew. And the fact that he was dead made this so harrowing. All these questions, I'd never know the answers. I wanted to hear his whole side, wanted to know every fleck of detail, wanted to lay in the crannies of each decision he ever made about me, but I'll never get to do that. I'll have to endure never knowing. And he had to endure the malignant opposite. He had to live his whole life knowing exactly what he'd done. If it was going to happen... If he was ever tempted to confess the truth to me, it was probably during that moment before my wedding to Blue, when he and I were putting on our rented tuxedos, when his hands shook so violently that he couldn't get his shirt buttoned up, when I dressed him like he had dressed me as a baby, a toddler, before leaving. The two of us, father and son, both miraculous liars, face to face as I worked his buttons. I know he wanted to say, it wasn't that I didn't love you. That's not why I left you there. Well, then why? It's not simple. Yeah, but why, I'd ask. I'd do it differently now. Yeah, but why? I just, 
I did. I thought I made the right decision at the time. And I'd say, but she was sick. And he'd say, I'm sorry. And I'd say, but didn't you love me? And he'd say, I'm sorry. And I'd say, but didn't you want to protect me? And he'd say, I'm sorry. And I'd say, but... Really, there would be nothing else to ask. I've spent so much of my life wondering why, and yet that's not the right question. Most of life is just a boiled paste of what? A pulp of stewed facts. This is what happened. Period. Of course, as we finished getting on our rented tuxedos, he chose not to be honest with me, even as he only had a few weeks left alive. Of course, I chose not to be honest with him about booze and drugs, and I had years still, but I was so scared of him knowing me. What I considered the real me, liquored up with a cocaine halo, a syringe of special K crammed in my tricep. There we were, two men who cherished blind spots. We loved each other and barely knew each other, and there's no reason to drag why into this. Let's leave it at the pulpy what? A son buttoning a rented shirt. Thank you. That's a very powerful section. It's there are certain I don't know how many we get in life, but there are there's certain memories that are just so vibrant, you know, years removed. I mean I can see that so I can see that scene so clearly. I think I only probably have a handful of those in my life, but that's one that I can right. just instantaneously recall. There's one other that you can probably instantaneously recall when you're at the top of the stairs. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. You want to read that or t- tell us about it? Um, what, whatever you would like to do is fine with me. Well, we, we just had a reading. Why don't you just share? Sure. We're uh, early in the morning. Your daughter's uh, awakened at a, what, 4.30 or something like that? She went through this really lovely phase, Gil, where she just woke up at 4.30 every morning. I know exactly what you speak. <laughs> and, and it's daughters that do that. And uh, it was about... Nine o'clock that morning, uh, we were headed to a place called the Peekaboo Factory, uh, which I know sounds like a German fetish bar, but is really like a hamster cage in West Portal in San Francisco, like a three-story plastic padded hamster cage for kids to run in and lose their minds. Right. She loves it. Uh, and this particular morning, you know, I was loaded down with the diaper bag and lunches and jackets and all sorts of things. And we live on the third floor of our apartment building. As I was locking the door, I had her sort of wedged between my legs. So my body was between her and the staircase as I was locking the door. And she wiggled out and wormed through my legs and went to the top of the stairs and didn't just step. She just leaped. Um, and went down a flight of stairs. Right. Not well-padded stairs either. It wasn't the sort of stairs where you would say, those are ideal stairs to fall down. (laughs) They had a carpet over them, but it was more like just for show. They were like almost like kind of concrete stairs. You write how you were were sure your your arm was going to reach 
quickly enough and be longer than it really was to be able to grab hold of something, but all you got was air. It was very surreal, you know, there, um, how do I want to say this? It seemed as though things were happening at mock speed and slow motion at the same time. You know, like she was right there and I was, you know, compelled to act, obviously. Um, but I was just a little bit too, a little bit too slow. Um, so she was about halfway down the stairs and I, and I leaped down them instinctually to grab her. And I did grab her. Um, but momentum, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> inertia, those things. So now she and I were tumbling together until we came to the, to the landing and then we, we finally stopped. The book's only been out since, you know, for three days as, as we're talking now. And I've been hearing from parents all week long, and it's this memory that people are reaching out to me about. Yes. Everybody has a story like this. Oh, yeah. My, Somebody goes over the bicycle right. or whatever right. it is. So I think no, every parent knows that moment where you're thinking like, I was right there. Mm-hmm. I was doing all of the right things. And yet I had to endure watching her fall you know, down 12 or 14 stairs. I mean, luckily she didn't get injured. The only thing that got really injured was was my perception of my capacity to even do this job. Because mm-hmm. my instinct as an addict is to always be like, I should run away from this. Yeah, This is going to be difficult. <laughs> and who wants to do that? Right. Uh, I should go, you know, check into some motel room and find some really wonderful ways to debase myself. Yeah, but the emergency services people didn't react that way at all. They aren't blaming. They aren't they're just, my gosh, this happened. Glad you could call and we could check her out. I would imagine that in the kind of the hierarchy of what they had seen that week, they were like, oh, this is a cakewalk. Right. You know, she's fine. We went to the emergency room anyways right. just because, you know, we have insurance and why not, you know, see if there's a, you know, a traumatic brain injury or whatever. And everything totally worked out. It was fine. The The only thing that the, the, the legacies or maybe a better word would be detritus. I mean, the, the, the detritus of that scenario had nothing to do with Ava. It just had to do with what started to happen to me psychically. Mm-hmm. It started to happen with me emotionally, which is like, I don't know if I can, if I'm the sort of person who can be a good father. Right. I might just be too incompetent to, to, to do this job. Well, you have two role models as your parents who uh, certainly would raise that question in the back of your mind over and over and it still probably does. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, with booze too, um, there's this there, – There's I think there's this – there's this stigma – or maybe stigma is not the right word. Uh, there's a binary, you know, that in a society we like stories that are clean mm-hmm. where – I used to do drugs and I used to drink a lot and I was a bad person, right? right. And then I got clean and now I'm shiny and new and and I'm a good person. And what that is it is it that cut and dry? I think that from a narrative standpoint, I think I think we're trained cinema has trained us that way that we can see people overcome various obstacles. And by the time we get to the end, there's been some recognizable change that suggests going into the yeah, future right. that they're going to be better. Right. 
And what I really wanted to do in Sirens is to make sure that I made the sober part, me being sober now, complex. Because I think sobriety is incredibly complex. And even if you say like, oh, I've got two years clean, five years clean, ten years clean, you still have these chirping voices, mm-hmm. um, sometimes triggered by ubiquities and sometimes triggered by watching your daughter fall down a flight of stairs. It's just a matter of what are you going to do? Are you going to give in to those you know, sirens calling or are you going to say, not today? You know, I'm going to show up. I'm going to try to be a good husband to my second wife. I'm going to try to be a good dad and we'll see what happens. All right. We'll come back to why you called it sirens in just a minute. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB FM. Today's guest is the award-winning novelist and writing teacher Joshua Moore. Joshua's five novels have earned accolades, including being one of O Magazine's top ten reads, an editor's choice in the New York Times, and the Northern California Book Award. He has turned inward for his latest book, a literary memoir entitled Sirens. And if you stay tuned to KRCBFM, you'll find out why he chose that title. <laughs> you're, you're on. Let us tell. Because when I read Sirens, I heard, I saw, you know, lights flashing on top of an emergency vehicle. I saw, heard the old, you know, sirens on the shore calling to the ships sure. going past. I, I gave all kinds of possibilities. Yeah. And I think what's nice about kind of a one-word generic title like that is it, it, is it leads to some kind of dilution of all of those things. You know, that it doesn't just have to be category one or category two. It can certainly be, you know, emergency services, mm-hmm. and it can certainly be – you know, Odysseus deciding that he wants to be the first person to hear the sirens sing and live to tell the tale, right? right? So he has his crew tie him to a mast, and they all jam wax in their wax, ears yeah. so they can't hear the sirens singing, so they can do their job and not crash the ship as every other sailor has done. Uh, and Odysseus hears them. It's It's beautiful music. It's mesmerizing, but it's also hostile and violent and is asking you to to tear your world apart um so i could use that as part of the the metaphor of the title and then i think the the third one so what is doing the siren call for you in most of your life oh uh drugs 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 i mean after i i tell the the odysseus story in in the book's second chapter and then the the pages immediately follow that i kind of i'm putting a litany together of really prosaic details, like I make my daughter a bottle with heaping formula in there and I spill a little bit of formula on the counter and all of a sudden it's a line of cocaine. Right. Um, And it's not only just a line of cocaine, but suddenly I'm salivating, you know? And you say like, oh my gosh, that's so sick. Pavlovian response. Absolutely. And my, uh, Ava, at the time... uh, loved to kind of sit on my lap while I was playing the acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she would take the pick and she would throw it inside the instrument. And I don't know if you've ever played an acoustic guitar before, but there's no graceful way to get the pick back out. So I would shake it back and forth, and I, all I would hear was a pill in there. Mm. You know, it could have been a nickel. Right. It could have been a bullet, <laughs> a glass eye. But all I heard was Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that to anybody else would seem innocuous, you know, but kind of from my programming and from my history, like 
they're they're predators. They're triggers. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay, I'm going to take you back a little bit again um, to a scene what, which I've entitled The Stripper's Baby. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Of course. Yes. And uh, you The know, Stripper's th- Baby, that's funny. You like that? I do. Okay, well, you can use that if I you want. I should have called it that. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a time again where we are in the about gosh this is going to be a little bit more challenging well there's another Um, there's a flashback in here to when you're 10 but yeah so that's not that it this was right after my dad had passed and some friends i was bartending at the time at pier 23 on the embarcadero in san francisco and um some other co-workers and i scored a bunch of acid and drove to reno for a Weekend of of debauchery and strange driving and strange driving. Yeah, I was the one who was driving right. on on LSD, and it turns out I'm I'm pretty good at that. You know, the little known talents that we have. Right. It's nice there was desert on either side. <laughs> um, should should I set the whole scene because we're going to start kind of in the middle of the scene? Uh, right? yeah, sure, set it up. Um, so. One of the guys that we went up there with the, the, during the first night got got thrown in the drunk tank. So he wasn't going to be let out to the next morning. Um, so the two other people that I was with, we were killing time. Uh, so we were taking in some exotic dancers the next morning at a, at a strip club that had a buffet table. So we figured at the time, what could be better? Right. See naked ladies, eat prime rib, everybody wins. <laughs> Um, and one of the strippers, I had asked her if she could help me get some cocaine, mm-hmm. and she said that she could. She said that she, I, we couldn't leave together because she'd get fired for that, but she could leave before me, um, and then she could pick me up around the corner, and she would take me to her house. So you're making a score. To procure the narcotics. Right. And I think we'll pick the story up from there. Okay. Stripper's name, I don't remember what her last name is, so her name was, so we're just going to call her Quinn. Quinn drove me to one of those prefab complexes out on the edge of town. All the condos washed in beige stucco, front yards just tan gravel. We walked into her house, and she vanished into the bedroom, told me to grab a beer and sit in the living room. I heard voices in the back, and for the first time I got scared. I didn't know her. I could very easily get robbed, not that their take would be worth the effort, but still, no one wants to get rolled in Reno. Soon, Quinn returned carrying a baby, a little boy with bright red hair, the same shade that I had as a youngster. This is Bobby, she said. Who are you talking to? She motioned to the baby. Where's the sitter, I asked. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you watch him for a few minutes, and I'll go get the blow, said Quinn, handing him over before I had the chance to say anything back. Then she disappeared into the backyard through the sliding glass door. It was Bobby and me. We stared at each other. I bounced him on my knee and said, I'm a friend of your mom's? I held that little boy and thought about all the strange men my mom had left me with over the years once my dad bolted for California. There was this one crazy cat, Jim B. 
I don't know much about him, really. He was a handyman at the company where my mom was the secretary. He had a hair trigger. I saw him wing his coffee cup at a car because the guy cut him off in traffic. One day in his truck, he chopped a cigar and said to me, Hey, are you tough? I was about 10 years old. Yeah, I'm tough. Let's see about that, he said. Jim told me to place my forearm down on the armrest between us. He placed his forearm right next to mine, so they touched. Then he took his lit cigar and laid it down on us, so it was burning both our arms. First one to move as soft as a baby's ass, said Jim. Without any dad around, I wanted to impress Jim. I wanted him to say, kid, you're chiseled out of rock. But I wasn't tough. I was a ten-year-old faking it. I held my arm there, smelling the burn of his arm hair, our skin. I tried to be as tough as possible, but pretty soon I jerked my arm away and rubbed the spot where the cherry kissed it. Toughest in all the land, said Jim, retrieving his cigar and taking some celebratory puffs. It's hard to understand why my mom left me with men like Jim. It's easy to simply say she was an alcoholic making bad decisions, and that's true too, but I bet she had no idea about the day Jim burned my arm. I probably didn't mention it to her. Truth was I liked spending time with Jim, even if he scared me. He was a man, a tough man, and no matter how dumb it sounds now, I enjoyed being around him. Yes, he was dangerous, but he gave me lots of attention. I was never an afterthought with him. When we spent time together, I was his world. And if you spend enough time being ignored, a burning cigar on your skin isn't so bad. Your mom loves you, I said to Bobby, bouncing him some more. So does your dad. They're trying their best. Because of my sisters, I was good with babies, but Quinn didn't know that. She didn't care, needed her cut of the money from selling me an eight ball. She wasn't getting rich working the morning shift at the club. I don't want to say apathy, don't want to say malice, don't want to believe Bobby was left with men like me often, men looking to score drugs, score anything Quinn was willing to hawk. I don't want to ponder all the gems that might have sat on this same sofa, whipping out their burning cigars or worse. I don't want to say any of that because Bobby deserves better. Your alter ego. <laughs> it was one of those moments in life where you feel like not an angel per se, right? Because I was trying to get coke after all. Right. But I felt as though like if somebody had to be the person that this kid was left with, I was the perfect candidate to that. Even though it's only for a brief time. Even for a brief time. You know, my I have a sister who's 15 years younger than me, so I was really good with kids. I'm trustworthy despite all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> and for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, um, I just played with this kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had been left alone all morning in the back room of right. this right. 
back room of this house and I I don't know even how to explain kind of the emotional ecosystem of a moment like that where you just I just hated myself so much for being there. Like it wasn't my fault that Quinn was leaving her son alone. Right. But I was on the premises, which means that I was affiliated in that you were enabled realm. Um, in a sense. Yeah. Continuing the same. And the worst part about the story is that before we went back into Reno, she had come back in with the drugs and was like, hey, let's do a line before we leave. And I just wish I had the power to say no. Um, but I wasn't capable of doing that back then. So, mm-hmm. you know, Bobby's playing on her, his blanket and Quinn and I are doing rails before we go back out the door. I, even just talking about it, I can feel like the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah, um, it's It's embarrassing. Now you're going to project forward this little kid a few years to, say, fifth grade when you were a latchkey, you called yourself mm-hmm. in the book. And you're doing, what are you making? You're making some strange thing with beach schnapps and... Fuzzy navels. Fuzzy navels, right? Right. That was my mom's drink. And that would kind of be, because that was the desert it was made with, uh, in a blender with ice. Absolutely. Right? And they would be left over in the morning. Yeah, I mean, she was either a fuzzy navel drinker or a box wine drinker. Right. And from my standpoint, as a you know fourth, fifth grade kid... They were the perfect covers for me, you know, because she could never see through a box, right? Right, and then with the with the blender, you're sort of like, what? Did How I much drink was all that? that? Yeah. Um, so it was perfect for me. And what I came to early on, even as a you know, a ten year old kid, I love that feeling of being completely out of control, buzzed, not buzzed. Oblivion. Obliviate. You know, like even at that age, it'd be like, oh, I, I like this. I want to – I like to do it so much that like I can't remember what I'm doing. I mean to be to be blacking out when you're 9, 10 years old. Yeah. Um, it's just like, oh my gosh. That's not good, Gil. No. Right. So why did you move to Berkeley when you were 17? Was there I actually didn't move there at 17. I moved there – I don't know if the law is the same – now, but back then, when you turned 12, you were able to decide which parent you wanted to live with. You were a judge, you get in front of a judge and make that decision. Right. Yeah. So then I could say, when I, when, um, when I turned 12, I could say, oh, I want to move up to Northern California and be with, be with my dad, who at that point had remarried. Um, and I had one sister, mm-hmm. Jessica. Katie had not been born yet. Mm-hmm. So I could get there and I could test drive this immaculate shiny family right um they're living like the suburban life and you know martinez and lafayette and this like really idyllic thing right for sure and when i first got there it was this just unctuous sanctuary where i was just like i'm safe all of these things that had been sort of around me in my vicinity weren't there anymore Mm -hmm. um and i loved that for a year, a year and a half, until those kind of the gurgle of resentment, you know, like, well, why, why are you going to be stable and here for this family and not, and not for yeah. the family that I was yeah. a part of? So that sort of really lit the fuse for kind of the the anger that traveled with me for for a long time. 
defiant teenager. Yeah, I mean, I wish it had stopped as a defiant teenager, but I think that that's mindset, that stunted mindset, you know, stayed with me until into my early 30s. Well, there's something about you that allows you to take on a a, a task. We'll say you like going to college and get, not getting one degree but two. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you write in here somewhere about your first day at grad school where you show up so wasted that when they, you're called upon, you can't remember what the question was that had just been asked. I don't know if you ever if you remember that old TV show, Quantum Leap. Yeah, that's, you talk about that. And Quantum Leap, you know, if anyone doesn't remember Quantum Leap, at the beginning of every episode, the main character, a scientist ta- time traveler, has to, on the fly, kind of orient himself in space-time. And that perfectly describes my first well, night Well, he of takes school. over a, another person's body. Right. Right. And... I came to in a graduate seminar that had been going on for about an hour. I don't know how I got there. I don't know what I've been saying. The last thing I remember, I was at a San Francisco Giants day game. Mm-hmm. We went to have a couple cocktails after the game. And, and passed then, the beer places on the way to the seats. Yeah, and then who knows how I how I made my way up there. And you know, that was there was so much shame around that because at that point I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to literature. Right. You know, I was reading every day. No matter how hungover I was, I was writing every day. I was I was able to maintain some sort of discipline around the things that, like, really spoke to me on one hand. And then on the other hand, like, the first night, I couldn't even show up to the first night right. correctly. Right. Um, and that, I was convinced I was going to get thrown out of the program. I was like, oh, my gosh. I've so you were at wanted the this for campus so on the top of the hill? Yeah, Lone yeah. Mountain. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, you're kind of surrounded with history as you're there, too. Then. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, I got out of that program in 2005, and then I started teaching there in 2010, which was such a surreal moment, <laughs> like, to be on the – to now be the professor at, on, a, on a place where I – you know, showed up in a quantum leap blackout right, on my first right. night. <laughs> Life is strange. So how were you able to, um, or are you able to, or do you know, how you were able to compartmentalize so that you could function on a, at least uh, to outsiders who didn't know where you went in after dark uh, on a fairly okay basis? You would go to school, you would write your papers, you'd be able to talk about them. You had long assignments. You, as I read somewhere, you did uh, you changed your your uh, master's project into uh, from short stories into a long form novel. Yep, which is no small. Well, and what's funny about that transition? Funny is obviously not the right adjective here. Is that when I wrote that novel for my graduate thesis, I was homeless. My ex wife, my first wife, Blue, had thrown me out of the house, mm-hmm. um, and I was couch surfing and, you know, a couple nights with a pal here, a couple nights with a buddy here. Um, and I wrote an entire draft of a novel in four months, mm-hmm. five months, something something crazy like that. Yeah. Um, and that was the one that ended up, you know, making Oprah's top ten of the, of the year, which was so um, surprising because that book is really sordid. Yeah. Um, and my even my agent was like, I wonder if somebody at O Magazine just wants to get fired. Like, are they just trying to, like, 
tank their career? What other possible explanation could there be? <laughs> well, the, uh, Oprah, uh, Oprah likes stories about uh, redemption. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think when uh, my my first book is called Some Things That Meant the World to Me, and it's a, it's a surrealist telling of sirens. Right. I mean, there's a lot of concentric material in there for sure. At that point, though, because I was still drinking and drugging so hard, I would not have been able to have the requisite level of honesty and intimacy for a memoir. So I needed to truss it up with these kind of grand memoirs, you know. So in in, in the novel, the person's, the main character's inner child knocks on his front door Mm -hmm. and tells him that they need to go burn down the house they grew up in in Arizona. Right. And that was as close to the truth as I could do then. Um, and I needed a few more years to kind of get my, my wits about me to actually tell the capital T truth. Now, you teach writing. I know uh, I found you through Amanda McTighe, who was at a writer's conference with you up in Squaw Valley. I, I don't remember where I first met Amanda, um, but I love her. She's such a good citizen. Yeah. But, yeah, I, t- I teach at you know the University of San Francisco in the graduate program. I teach at Stanford. Uh, I teach – um, online classes through something called Decant Editorial. Okay, so as a teacher now, put on that hat. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between a novel and a memoir? Well, I would make the argument that the only golden difference between the two is that in a memoir you can't intentionally lie. You're going to lie. It's impossible. The memory's so fallible. Sure, sure. Um, but you can't intentionally cook the facts. I think memoirs at their best read like novels where there's a reliance on scene, kind of active characterization in which these characters are immediately put under duress. The stakes are high to arouse, you know, the reader's appetite. Right. You know, I think when a reader decides to pick up a book of yours, that's such an incredibly generous thing that she's doing. You know, I mean, she's got a job and a family and a spouse and friends. And she, what does she have? 20 minutes to herself a day? Mm-hmm. 45 minutes to herself a day? Um, and if she's that generous to pick up a book, our side of the transaction is to take her on the most wild, compelling romp that we possibly can. And I, as a novelist, that has always been my my main objective. And I didn't change any of that when I was putting – Sirens together. I mean, I could have very easily made that book 400 pages, mm-hmm. 500 pages, mm-hmm. but I made a conscious decision to curate it in such a way that if you wanted to read it in two sittings, you could. Because I, th- I don't know how long it takes to read the book, but I would imagine it's just two, two or three hours, something like that. So it's almost like a stage play, right? You can read 90 well, pages. You can read, it, you can read it as I did. I, ba- I basically read it in two sittings. Yeah. Um, Probably a couple hours each, right? Yeah, or less. But you could read it as a bathroom book. Sure. You know, just pick it up and read that one brief section, and then yep. put it down again, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, like having those vignettes. I mean, you know, it can also make the, the analogy would work. It's things about like tiles in a mosaic, hmm. right? You want like each tile in itself to be compelling. But if I do my job right as the memoirist, by the time we get to the ending, you can stand back and you can take in an image that you didn't even know was going to be there until you had the whole entire trajectory under your belt. 
Okay, you had a chance a few days for people to get feedback because they read the book. Mm -hmm. And what do they say about your life to you? So far, it's been kind of two camps. Um, the ones that just, like, want to give me a hug. <laughs> You're going to be um, the little bear in the, with, the, uh, with the little outfit on from the, <laughs> the emergency room, right? It's funny because I, I think when memoirs at their best um, allow you so close to the – to the artist's kind of like existential biorhythm, mm-hmm. you know, where there's there's no distance. It becomes this, you know, chest to chest thing where you can feel my heartbeat in the book, and I can feel your heartbeat as you're as you're reading the book. Right. Um, and I think when when memoirists take the time to allow themselves to be that vulnerable, right, to not present themselves in such a way that like. Oh, like I know so much now. Let me t- tell you about a certain epoch in my life that was different than this one. That I made, I went way out of my way to make sure that I never sounded like I was, you know, playing croquet with Zeus on Mount Olympus now, right? That I'm still a confused Zeus, human. I didn't know he played croquet. He's really good. Is he? He's really good. No sticky wickets. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to make sure that it was that that every single element of myself in the book had that that humanness. I'm a, I'm a like a failed musician, so I think about writing a lot in musicians' terms. If you think about like a like a beginner's guitar chord, mm-hmm. almost all of them have three notes. So I wanted to figure out what three notes that I wanted to pluck in the book. To make the to make the thing sing the way I wanted it to sing. So, the first note, you know, was the caveman. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy who was running around and mission district, fist fighting and doing drugs and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then the second note was going to be the person who's just about to have the heart surgery. Right. You know, he's been sober for a while. He's got a wife. He he's got a kid. He's, he's mortal. Absolutely. And then the third one is kind of the presence that we were just talking about, what I would call a meta-narrator, a person who's inviting you into the writing of the book. So, for example, we were just talking about the scene where my daughter fell down the stairs. Right, right. And at the end of that scene, the narrator says directly to the audience, I'm sitting on those stairs right now. The laptop is balanced on my knees, and I'm writing in that hallway. You know, to really pull the reader closer into the book you know, so she feels as though she's not only complicit, um, but involved in, in the in the trajectory. Right. The book is called Sirens. The author is Joshua Moore. You've been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. The studio engineer for today's show has been Sean Knight, who is also our KRCB station manager. Our radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. And I am your host, Omancer. We invite you to join our next Word by Word broadcast from 4 to 5 on the afternoon of March 12th. Until then, here's a thought from Joshua Moore's Sirens. Even our sun has a past. It takes eight minutes for its light to reach us. So every time we're warmed by its heat, we're living in the past. <laughs>